Let us continue to stand for the reading of God's holy word. The reading of God's word will be from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Lord God, would you speak to us this morning and strengthen our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified and that your son exalted through your preached word today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first I want to just... Um, Extend the greetings to you, Five Points Community Church. It's always a privilege to be here. Thankful for this congregation. Thankful for my friendship with Pastor JJ and Mike. And um, this is one preaching engagement that I always enjoy uh, taking each year. So it's good to be here with you all. I'm going to preach to you today on the subject of our living hope. Our living hope. 1 Peter is a book that is very interesting and it is becoming more and more relevant um, as we see our culture changing today. We see a lot of similarities with the world that Peter is addressing, a lot of similarities with things that, that it, that's becoming more and more true in our own society today. The main theme here in 1 Peter is that of suffering. Peter is speaking to the first century church, and this church is living within a hostile pagan society. They're enduring persecution, they're enduring adversity in employment, at the hands of the government, at the hands of their neighbors. They're dealing with all manner of trouble and affliction. And Peter is writing this epistle to these Christians in order to encourage them, but also to instruct them on how to live as Christians amidst a hostile pagan society. And it's important for us to have that background as we uh, consider what we're going to be looking at today. You think about it, Christianity came into a world that was, that was steeped in Greek and Latin paganism. And the world, that ancient world, it wasn't like our own modern American society with its, its secular, our, our secular culture where religion and our, our public life is separated. 
In the ancient world, there was no separation. The idolatry and the pagan rites and, and rituals and, and uh, traditions associated with their idolatrous religion, it was interwoven into every aspect of society. To participate in politics, to participate in sports, entertainment, or whatever, it, it was all in connected, interconnected with idolatry and with pagan belief and pagan behavior. And so the Christians of the first century, in order to be faithful to Christ, they had to separate themselves from a lot of what was going on within the culture. But this made them, or this caused them to be viewed with suspicion by the people within the culture. The Christians, they would not participate in the pagan festivals. They didn't participate in the worship of the Roman gods. They didn't participate in the burning incense to Caesar or into all of the uh, licentious practices of the day. And so they were treated as uh, uh, um, antisocial. These Christians were looked upon as against the public good. And it is this that Peter is addressing. He's, he's addressing how do you deal with this? How do you live in the midst of people who are hostile to you and who are even, even slandering you and speaking evil of you because you're a Christian? Notice it in a few verses that kind of shows you that this is the kind of, uh, that this is the main idea here. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he, he immediately here brings in the this, this, uh, idea of suffering. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the re revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here Peter is telling them, even though you rejoice in your salvation, if necessary, many of you are grieving because you are going through these trials, these fiery trials. And he puts it in perspective by letting them know that these trials are coming to test your faith. Look again at verses 11 and 12 of the same first chapter. Verses 11 and 12, it says, I'm sorry, in, uh, rather in chapter 2. Chapter 2, 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Watch this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice that. They're being spoken evil of by the Gentiles. And he's telling the Christians, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. In other words, don't seek revenge. Don't seek to retaliate. Don't go pick up a gun and, 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 and try to defend yourself. He says, focus on living in such a way that these Gentiles can't speak against you as evildoers and so that God would be glorified in the day of visitation. 
Hopefully, maybe some of them can even be won to Christ by your exemplary behavior. Again, in chapter 2 and verse 15, and this is a key verse here in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 and 15, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, this is God's will. He, he's, he knows that you're being maligned. He knows you're being spoken evil of because of your faith. But God's will for you, people of God, is that by doing good, by living according to God's word, by obeying God's will, by focusing on living according to God's word, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so that's kind of the main theme here in Peter. How are we to live in the midst of a pagan society? We are to live in such a way that our main focus is not so much on what's happening to us, but we are to, even in the midst of persecution and adversity, our focus should be on how can I glorify God and even possibly be a light to win these Gentiles to Christ. And as I said before, brothers and sisters, this, this book is, is becoming more and more relevant to me because we increasingly find ourselves uh, facing a society like this in our own culture. We are living in a culture that is increasingly becoming more hostile to Christianity. And brothers and sisters, I don't believe it'll be long before we are dealing with some of the same type of opposition and persecution and harassment that the Christians in Peter's day had to endure. If you're my age or older, you remember a time when our country was more friendly towards Christianity. But if you look around today, you can see that it's, it's no longer the case. There was a time when our country was based upon and shaped by uh, the Christian worldview where people had Christian beliefs and Christian values and the majority of Christian people identified themselves as Christians, but that's no longer the case. And the beliefs and the values that shape our culture are no longer consistent with the Christian worldview, but a lot of the beliefs and the values that shape our culture today, uh, they come from atheistic, godless ideals which redefine some of the major categories uh, that we have always looked upon through the lens of Christianity. We have moved away from a time when people believed in divine revelation, that God gives truth through his word and that his truth defines what reality is. We live in the time of the postmodern self in which now we believe that truth is derived from the self. And we all create our own truth. And as a result, we see everything being turned upside down in our society today. And to be a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, one who takes God's word as the truth and one who, who sees reality through the lens of God's word, that's going to cause opposition. That's going to cause trouble with the culture. But where do we get the courage to stand against the opposition? 
Where do we receive the, the firmness in order to persevere and endure the hardship and affliction? And brothers and sisters, what Peter is, is addressing, it applies even more than just to persecution, but suffering of any and all kind. Brothers and sisters, we live in a difficult world. Even though America, we're still very blessed and privileged in this country, yet even in our affluent, free Western society, we still live in a troubled and difficult society. These last three or four years have been the craziest years I've seen in my life. But where do you get the courage and the strength to persevere and endure and stay faithful and, and, and to yet rejoice in the midst of all the suffering? Peter gives us the key in these first five verses here, First Peter. The key for us to endure is first of all by believing and being assured of who we are in Christ and rejoicing in the hope that is, a, that is set up for us as Christian people. The key is understanding who we are and what has been given to us by God in the gospel. It is the realization of what we have in Christ and of who we are in Christ that enables us to not be affected by the difficulties and the afflictions and the tribulations and the adversities of our present world. And so let's look at that. First of all, I want us to notice the greeting in verses 1 through 2. And even though here these two verses is simply the greeting to the recipients, yet there is a great deal of theological truth in this greeting. I mean, Peter, he just... Peter just heaps up weighty truth in every phrase almost. I mean, you could just really spend a lot of time just in this greeting. First of all, notice his recipients. Notice who he's addressing this letter to in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. First of all, let's stop there. Those who are elect. He's sending this letter to God's elect. And again, I think what Peter is doing here, first of all, is before he instructs them on how to live and how to endure the suffering and how to uh, uh, approach living in an anti-Christian pagan society, he wants to remind the, these uh, Christians of who they are. First of all, you are the elect. You are God's elect. The idea here is that those of us who are in Christ, we have been chosen to belong to God. We didn't just haphazardly become Christians. We didn't just choose of our own accord, well, I think I'll try being a Christian. No, the idea here is that God chose you before you were ever created. He chose you to belong to him. First of all, again, look at verse 2. He says, you are elect according, in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what does that mean? That you are God's elect according to God's foreknowledge. There are some 
Christians who believe that what that means is God looked into the future and he foreknew or he foresaw that you would believe in him. And so he chose you based on the fact that he foreknew that you would choose him. Brothers and sisters, that's just nonsense. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not making an election. If I look in the future and see what's going to happen, then I didn't choose anything. The person who made the choice did, not, not me. When the Bible says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, it's speaking of God's predetermined plan. It means God foreordained it. Like here in the same 23rd verse, or in the 23rd verse of this same first chapter. In verse 23, now I'm sorry, again, that's uh, verse 20, I'm sorry. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 is speaking about Christ here. And it says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Notice what it says about Christ here. It says that Jesus Christ was foreknown by the Father before the foundation of the world. Now, does that mean that the Father foresaw that Jesus would just appear in this world? No. He's saying he foreknew the Son. It's speaking of relationship. He foreknew his Son. There's a relationship there. Again, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the eternal existence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are three persons, yet one God. And there's, a, there's an intimacy of relationship there between the members of the Trinity. And so the Bible says that Jesus was foreknown. He was foreknown of the Father. They had a relationship prior to him being manifested in the world as the man Jesus Christ. He was foreknown by the Father before the foundation of the world. Again, we see the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. In that great passage in Romans 8, 29, it tells us that God foreknew us. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, Paul is saying that you didn't just become a Christian by accident. God foreknew you. And he predetermined that you would be conformed into the image of his son. When Jesus died on the cross, brothers and sisters, he did not die on the cross for a bunch of potential hypothetical people. He died specifically for those whom he knew. Remember what he said in John chapter 10. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. For, the, for them whom my father has given to me. And his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays to the father and father said, all that you have given to me, I have kept them. And so when, when Peter says here that we are elect according to God's foreknowledge, it means that God chose us because he foreknew us. He set his love upon us before the world was ever created. 
God's love for us is an eternal love. That's why Paul could say nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, because he set his love upon us, not based upon anything we have done, but because of his own sovereign love and purpose. The idea here is that in saying that we are God's elect, the idea is we are his people. We belong to him. God chose us to belong to him. Again, look at chapter 2 of 1 Peter in verse 5. Chapter 2 in verse 5. It says here, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here he's comparing the church to the temple. In the passage that we read earlier in the call to worship in Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah in the temple. This is where the, the people of Israel went to worship God. This is where the presence of God resided. And they went there to worship God in his presence. And here Peter is saying to the church, you are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house or a spiritual temple. You are the new temple. God dwells in you and you have been built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. We are that worshiping community. God resides within his people and we have been chosen and called to belong to him in order that we might worship him. Again, in the same second chapter, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race. Again, chosen is another word for elect. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, God chose you specifically for this. God chose you to be a part of this holy priesthood. And that's something special. But then next... He tells us something else about the people who, who he's writing to here. We are God's elect, God's chosen people. He also calls them exiles to those who are elect exiles. Now, what's the idea here? An exile basically is somebody who is living in another land outside of his own homeland. An exile might be staying temporarily in a particular place, but that's not his or her home. And Peter is saying to the Christians here, we, are, we live in this present world, but this world is not our home. We have another home. This world doesn't belong to us, and we don't belong to this world. Do you? Do you see right off the back, brothers and sisters, right from the jump, Peter is giving us quite a perspective. Think about it. Living in a hostile culture, 
living in a world full of suffering, living in a world that can be overwhelming sometimes with its problems. How good is it for us to be able to sit back and reflect and remember, first of all, it doesn't matter to me how this world treats me because I belong to God. I'm a child of God. I'm a daughter of God. God is my father. Read in the Old Testament because the, you know, the, 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 um, the real typology for being God's elect people is the nation of Israel. And notice how special Israel is in the sight of God. As a matter of fact, the verse that I just read to you in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, where Peter calls the church a holy nation, a, priest, a royal priesthood, a chosen people. That comes right out of Exodus 19. Those are the words that God was speaking about Israel. When Peter makes this statement in verse 9 of chapter 2, he's taking that which was true of Israel in the Old Testament and saying it's true of us. There's a place in the Old Testament where God says to Israel, he that toucheth you touches the apple of my eye. And one of the prophets, it talks about how God loves Israel and that he's zealous for Israel and delights in Israel. And it talks about how God rejoices over Israel with loud singing. And the church is the Israel of God. All of those promises made to Israel belongs to us in Christ. Because Christ is the seed of Abraham, as Paul tells us in Galatians 3, the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is Abraham's seed. And then Paul says, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promises. What does this world have to offer us that is better, that is greater than being one of God's elect people? And no matter what happens to this world, no matter how hard things get, no matter if it seems like our country is falling apart, and sometimes it looks like our country is falling apart right before our very eyes, but yet still we are exiles in a strange land. This is not our home. I love my country. I love America. My heart breaks for what's going on in America. In America. But ultimately, this is not my ultimate home. My home is eternal in the heavens. And so we are God's elect. We are exiles in this world. But again, now he, he gives us, he goes further to talk about even more what is the basis of our election and what our, uh, our position as elect people, what all that entails. Again, in verse 2, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And we, we talked about what that means. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, when you read that, do you notice something? You notice something, do you notice 
Who's being mentioned in those verses? He mentions God the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's mentioning the whole triune Godhead there, all intimately involved in our salvation. God the Father chose us and elected us before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit came to sanctify us, to renew us, to cleanse us. And God the Son sprinkled us with his blood in order that our sin might be pardoned and forgiven. Listen, we are so much loved by God. We are so much his people that the whole triune God is involved in our salvation. That makes us pretty special. And then notice he, he, he wishes this blessing upon them. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now again, some might think that this is just normal etiquette for writing a letter, just like saying warm greetings or warm regards or whatever. But again, this is a statement of the gospel. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited love, kindness, and favor towards you. And what is peace? Peace here is the, is the reconciliation. It is the fruit of the reconciliation between us and God. God is no longer hostile toward us. God is no longer, his anger is no longer upon us because of our sin. We have peace with God because we have been justified. Peace with God in terms of his love and his favor is upon us. And we also have an inner peace because we know we are forgiven and accepted. And that's exactly what the gospel brings. The gospel brings God's grace and his peace. And Peter says, not only am I praying for God's grace and peace to be towards you, but that it might be multiplied. That you might know more and more of his grace and of his peace. In John chapter 1, in that great chapter where John talks about Jesus as being the word, and in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. And then a few verses down, he said, and we beheld his glory as that of the only begotten of the, of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it says, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace, more and more grace. God's never ending, boundless grace, love and kindness towards his people is multiplied to those in Christ. We receive more and more and more. Next, he goes on to give us the reason that we have to praise God. We are a people who have a reason to rejoice and praise God. Again, look at verse 3. Notice the benefits of the salvation that we have. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that word blessed there means praise. 
He's praising. Peter starts off in worship. God is to be praised. God is to be worshipped. He is to be honored. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's one of the first benefits of our salvation, brothers and sisters. We have been born again. The idea here is that the, the reason why, that there was a problem with us in God prior to our salvation was because we were born into sin. We were born of the flesh, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. What is flesh? Our fallen, sinful humanity. And Paul says concerning fallen, sinful humanity in Romans chapter 7, he says, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. In another place, Paul says, they who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why? Because the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And that describes each and every one of us. I joke around and I, and I say all the time at my church, the proof that we were born in sin and that the flesh is utterly corrupt is God gave us children to look at and learn that from. Just look at your children. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish. You don't have to teach your children to tell fibs and to tell stories or to, uh, or to uh, be self-centered and to fight over the toys and stuff like that. You have to teach them to do good. You have to teach them to obey. What happens to a child that is left to itself who is never taught discipline? We're born into that state. We're born with this selfishness. We are born with this pride. But Peter says, we have a reason to praise God because he caused us to be born again. He has renewed us. We are no longer characterized by the flesh. He has put his spirit within us. He has made us anew. A passage which explains what this new birth looks like or what this new birth entails is a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 25, Notice what, is, what God says through Ezekiel, and here he's describing what we mean by uh, this new birth or this being born again. In Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 25, he says here, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
and give you a heart of flesh. There, flesh doesn't mean fallen sinful humanity. Flesh means soft there. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here, he's prophesying about the salvation that would come to his people in the, in the New Testament era. And he says it will involve a spiritual cleansing. He will cleanse us from our idols and from our filthiness. And it, it, it also entails a renewing of the heart. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you. Removing that heart of stone, that hard, hard, stony heart that was hard and resistant to God. But I'm going to give you a soft heart that is sensitive to the things of God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to obey me. This is why we praise God, brothers and sisters. Because God the Father has caused us to be born anew. He has given us his spirit. He has made us a new people. We are new creatures in Christ. But he says we've been not only born again, but we've been born again unto something. What is it that we have been born unto? Again, look at verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. And here, this is so important. This is why and how we can endure suffering and mistreatment and all other hardships. Because no matter what goes on around us, brothers and sisters, we still have a living hope. And in the Bible, when the biblical writers talk about hope, they're not talking about wishful thinking like when we say, man, I hope it don't rain today. No, in the Bible, hope is confident expectation, confident, joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. Hope is connected with faith and confidence. We have faith and we have confidence in God's promise that God has promised us salvation and therefore hope is our joyful anticipation, our joyful expectation of that salvation. And this is what gives Christians joy. This is what gives us joy in the midst of our sorrows. See how Paul is setting these Christians up. All of this stuff that you're going through in this world is nothing compared to the hope that you have as God's people, as God's elect exiles who have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God and sanctified by the Spirit and sanctified and washed and sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You have a hope. And what is this hope? First of all, notice what the hope is based on. The hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The salvation that is our hope 
was purchased by Christ upon the cross. And we have the confirmation of, what, of Jesus' work being effective in that God the Father raised him from the dead. And the Bible tells us that Jesus in his resurrection from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. The first fruits meaning what? He is the first of more to come. He is the beginning of the harvest. And the harvest day is coming when we too will share in that resurrection. And so the resurrection of Christ is our assurance. It is the assurance of the living hope that we have. And why does he call it a living hope? Because, brothers and sisters, this which was purchased through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this hope that we have, it is, it is, it is not like anything that this world has to offer. This world can offer only death. This world is a world that is under sin and death. Everything in this world is passing away. But the hope that we have is a living hope. It never passes away. It's an eternal hope. It doesn't get old. Notice, that's what he goes on to tell us in the next verse. Notice it in verse 4. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's talking about an inheritance here. In verse 5, he calls it a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Our inheritance is an eternal inheritance. It, is, it has to do with our eternal salvation. And let me say this, because sometimes I think when we think about heaven, our view of heaven is not very uh, exciting. Sometimes when we think about heaven, we think about floating around on clouds, playing the harp all day. Well, what's so special about that? But heaven is not just floating around on clouds playing a harp. John in the book of Revelation gives us a description of what heaven is, which is the essence of our eternal inheritance. And I want you to notice what John describes in Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. First of all, what is this new city coming down from heaven. It's the church in her glorified state. Remember Ephesians 5 tells us that the church is the bride of Christ and that Christ gave himself for his church that he might wash her and cleanse her 
from every spot and blemish and present him blameless, present her blameless as a beautiful bride before himself. Here's the fulfillment of that. In heaven, the church is glorified. Every spot, every blemish has been washed away. We've been made holy. We've been made blameless. We've been made perfect. We have been glorified. And now the church is being presented to Christ. I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day of seeing Christ face to face and not having sin, the corruption of sin in my heart anymore. How many times have you, I'm sure if you're a true Christian, you understand that feeling of wanting to draw nearer to Christ, wanting more of a, a more closeness with the Lord, but you're constantly being hindered by your own sin. I want more of God. I want, a, I want a clearer vision of him. I want to taste more of his grace and peace. I want to walk more close to him and experience his presence more, but my sin is always an obstacle. As Paul said, when I would do good, evil is always present. The closer we get to God, the more we, we, we recognize how sinful we are. The closer we get to him, the more we see our sin. Just like, in the, again, in the call to worship in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God in his majesty. And what is the first thing he says? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But here, John sees the church in all of her perfection. No more sin, no more lust, no more pride, no more corruption of the flesh. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. This is the fulfillment and the very essence of the covenant. Over and over again in the Old Testament, what does God repeat to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel when he, when he reaffirms the covenant to them? And I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in the midst of you. To have the tabernacle or the temple in the midst of Israel was a symbol of God dwelling in the midst of his people. But in heaven, we will realize that in its full perfection, perfect reality. God will actually come down and dwell in the midst of his people. It says he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Look at this verse four. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What John is describing here is a state of the perfect enjoyment of God throughout all eternity. That's what heaven is. Heaven is being brought into the immediate presence of God for the perfect enjoyment of God. Nothing like that. Nothing in this world compares. This world has nothing to offer that comes anywhere close to that. And we should remember that in our times of suffering. And that's what Peter is trying to get 
these Christians to realize, yes, you have it bad right now. Yes, you're dealing with all of this persecution and affliction, but look what belongs to you. Look at who you are. Look at what your inheritance is. But what if something happens and I don't make it? What if I fall and stumble? What if, what if my sin get the best of me and, and I come short and I fall short and I don't get the inheritance? Peter has an answer for that too. Look at verse 5 again. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In the old King James it says, who are being kept by the power of God for salvation to be revealed in the last time. Listen, all of those whom God has chosen and elect, elected to belong to him, he will keep them. Jesus said, no one can pluck the sheep from his hand. He told the father, of all of them you have given to me, I have not lost one of them. Just as this salvation is kept for us in heaven, it is being reserved for us in heaven, we too are being kept for the realization of our inheritance. Brothers and sisters, whenever you feel overwhelmed, whenever you feel the pressure of living in a pagan, unchristian society, or just the pressure of living in a fallen, broken world, remember who you are. You are God's elect. You belong to him. And nothing happens to you apart from God's love and will. And remember when it seems like things are uncertain with your job, things are uncertain with your investments, things are uncertain on a political realm. It, we don't know what's going to happen. But remember, your inheritance is not here. You have an eternal inheritance that is reserved for you in heaven. An eternal inheritance that will never fade away. And when you feel the weight of your sin, and sometimes it feels like, like your faith is, is weakening and your love for God is waning, remember, God is keeping you. He will not let you fall. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. All whom he called, he has also predestined and justified and glorified. If he called you, he will glorify you. Brothers and sisters, let that be your joy and your hope as you live in the midst of a hostile and broken society. Our Father and our God, Lord, you have set before us such wonderful and amazing promises. Lord God, help us to understand and realize who we are and what you have given to us in Christ. And Lord, may we rejoice in that hope. May we rejoice in our living hope and not be moved by the sinking sand and the shiftless times that we live in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.